The Bowery Boys episode 372, The Schuberts, The Brothers Who Built Broadway. Hey, it's the Bowery Boys. Hey. Hi there, welcome to the Bowery Boys. This is Greg Young. And this is Tom Myers. And we are on Broadway. Mm-hmm. Or just a block west of Broadway on 44th Street, to be more specific. But Broadway is back in a big way this fall after more than a year and a half of darkened stages due to the pandemic lockdowns. Yeah, we are in the thick of it here. We are on Broadway. We're, we're not yet on a marquee, I'm afraid. Not, not yet. yet. No. And we're standing in the center of the Broadway Theater District, a little spot known as Schubert Alley. But this is no ordinary alley, but a pathway that cuts through the block of 44th and 45th Streets, surrounded by Broadway theaters. And many of these theaters were built and originally operated by the Schubert brothers. They were impresarios who basically invented the Broadway theater district as we know it today and changed the way that people see stage shows in the United States. Well, to celebrate the return of Broadway, we're going to look at the business of making shows and explore the story of the brothers Schubert, Lee, Sam, and JJ. They ushered in the modern theater age and helped make New York the theater capital of the world. In fact, creating that world from the various stages we see right around us right now, Tom, including right next to us right here, the Schubert and the Booth Theater. Yeah, we're kind of between the Schubert and the Booth, which are both fabulous theaters. In fact, the Schubert here was home to a chorus line from 1975 until 1990. Mm -hmm. Greg, it played more than six thousand performances right on the other side of that wall five six seven eight but today we're going to go way back about a hundred years when lee schubert had his office right here above the schubert theater and it was there where careers could be made or destroyed even as the musicals themselves were usually light and gay the business itself could be incredibly cutthroat Although it's the actors, directors, playwrights, and composers who get most of the credit for creating the great American works of the stage, they would be guided almost like puppet masters by the producers and theater operators. And for decades, the most powerful name on Broadway was Schubert. They controlled dozens of theaters in New York and hundreds throughout the country. So we'll be telling their story today, and then later in the show, we'll cross Times Square to visit the Lyceum Theater on West 45th Street. Upstairs above the theater, we'll be visiting the Schubert Archive. Well, the show's about to start, so everybody, take your seats and uh, grab one of those little sippy cups of wine from (laughs) the lobby. Yeah, and and please, for the love of God, unwrap your candies now. (laughs) And join us as we bring the curtain up on the lives of the Schuberts, the brothers who built Broadway. (laughs) 
All right, Tom, let's get this show on the road here. Specifically, <laughs> let's get this show to Schubert Alley, because we will be discussing the Schubert brothers, but a mm-hmm. great place to begin here is Schubert Alley. Can you situate the listener for us? Well, this part's the easiest of the whole show. Schubert Alley runs north-south between 44th and 45th Streets, right? It cuts through halfway between 8th Avenue and Broadway. Now, we'll get to the creation of Schubert Alley in a few minutes, but it is located just outside the Schubert Theater on 44th and the Booth Theater on 45th behind it. And that is the western side of the alley. Right. On the eastern side of the alley is a skyscraper that has another Broadway theater in its basement, and it has a Junior's restaurant. <laughs> right. Uh, but pre-Junior's, for most of our story today, the eastern side of the alley was not that skyscraper, but, but it was the backside of the Hotel Astor, which opened in 1904. Now, the Hotel Astor would be demolished after a big fight, which deserves its own show, in 1967, and it would be replaced by the 54-story skyscraper that stands there today. The building is called One Astor Plaza, which is kind of cute, but the address is 1515 Broadway. And today that building houses its own Broadway house, the Minskoff Theater, along with studios for CBS and MTV. It's actually the headquarters of Viacom CBS. So some very dramatic changes on the east side of the alley here, just Mm -hmm. colossal changes. But on the west side of the alley, things have remained more traditional and really, you could say it's become you know, the heart of the Broadway theater district. Yes, thanks to zoning, right, and to landmarking, but also to another very shrewd deal that took place in the 1940s, which we'll talk about later in the show. But yes, this alley feels like the very heart of the theater district. Or to be specific, the Schubert Theater Empire. Right. There are, of course, other theater owners in the city, Jew Jameson, Niederlander, uh, but the Schubert organization is quite large. And in fact, of the 41 active Broadway theaters in New York City, the Schubert organization owns and operates 17 of them. Okay, so nearly half of them. These include, very quickly, the Ambassador, the Barrymore, Belasco, Booth, Broadhurst, Broadway, Court, Golden, Imperial, Bernard Jacobs, Longacre, Lyceum, Majestic, Music Box, Gerald Schoenfeld, Schubert, and Winter Garden. Got that? (laughs) Some theaters they built and some theaters they later bought. Right. And they also own several off-Broadway houses, um, including one on Theater Row on 42nd Street and New World Stages, which is that five-theater complex on West 50th. Plus, they own and operate the Forest Theater in Philadelphia. And they don't just own the theaters. Sometimes they actually produce the shows that will go into those very theaters. Right, which was the case early on for the first decades of the organization. And then again, after a brief lull from the 1970s to today, they have produced some of Broadway's biggest hits since the 70s, from Godspell to Cats, even up to Dear Evan Hansen. So who were the Schuberts? We're speaking about the three brothers, Lee, Sam, and Jacob, who would go by JJ. All of them born in the 1870s, their dates are sometimes hard to nail down because they gave different birth dates in different interviews and such. But Lee was probably born in 1871 or 75, Sam in 77 or 78, and Jacob in 79. 
And along with their parents and sisters, they immigrated from Eastern Europe, from the Prussian Empire, uh, present-day Lithuania, to the U.S. in 1881. They were a Jewish family. They came over to New York and settled in Syracuse, New York. The boys had a pretty rough early childhood, uh, working several odd jobs on the streets to bring any kind of money back to the family, especially as their father was often away trying to get work. And when did they start dabbling in the theater world? In fact, very early, um, Sam was selling newspapers as a young teenager in front of a Syracuse theater, and he landed a walk-in role in a touring production of a play called May Blossom, a play produced by David Belasco. Mm. He loved it. He loved being inside the theater. So he started working around Syracuse and other theaters and eventually became a head of the box office at one of these theaters, The Weeding. And while he was there in 1894, he met a very successful playwright named Charles Hoyt. He was a sort of superstar blockbuster playwright of the day. And Sam, still a teenager, had the nerve to approach and ask him if he could produce one of his comedies on tour, a show called A Texas Steer. Oh, that's Sam. He's got moxie. (laughs) He had a lot of moxie. (laughs) But he didn't have any experience producing because he was only like 16 years old. Oh. (laughs) But he was a very hard worker and everybody liked him. So Charles Hoyt agreed, sold him the touring rights, and Sam pulled together the money formed a cast, and organized a tour of a Texas steer. And the show immediately made money. It made $10,000 of profits for him in 1894, which was a lot of money. And it was enough money to launch Sam and really his brothers in the business. And so they doubled down, they reinvested in more shows, and actually started leasing theaters upstate. And just to underscore this, in the 1890s, theater is the prominent form of entertainment, right? This mm-hmm. is before TVs, and it's before movies even. And people would go to the theater many times a week and see all different types of entertainment on the stage. Right. And they'd see plays, they'd see vaudeville, vaudeville houses, obviously. But going to the theater was the main way in which Americans were consuming their entertainment. So here in the 1890s, Sam, who was just a teenager, seemed unstoppable. And he brought in his brothers then to help Lee, his older brother, and JJ, his younger brother. They leased a theater in Syracuse, then another in Utica, then one in Troy, one in Albany. And then with some investors, they actually built their own theater, the Baker in Rochester, which was managed by his younger brother, JJ. So they were slowly becoming kind of kings of upstate New York theater. Exactly. Well, I certainly hope these brothers got along. (laughs) Well, we'll talk about that more in the show. But in in their own way, they definitely knew how to work with each other. In the book, The Schuberts of Broadway, a history drawn from the collections of the Schubert Archive, author Brooks McNamara quotes the theatrical manager M.B. Levitt as describing the brothers as, quote, unique among the theatrical personalities of New York. He recalled Sam as an extremely hard worker whose, quote, endurance, courage, and willingness were wonderful, and who always found time to show his goodwill toward his fellow man. Lee, according to Levitt, quote, is the dreamer and schemer, 
and JJ, quote, the ultra practical man of the combination and the shock absorber. He takes the jolts and rides over them without a quiver. He has a habit of getting down to cases immediately and staying there. So when did the brothers finally come to New York City? They came in 1900. Uh, Sam and Lee came down and they leased their first theater, the Herald Square Theater at Broadway and 35th Street while J.J. stayed upstate to manage all of those other theaters. Broadway and 35th Street. So that really was the center of the theater district in 1900. In fact, Times Square was developing rather rapidly, but Mm -hmm. was not quite there yet in terms of being the heart of the theater world here. Right. Times Square was a few years off in the distance. But here at the Herald Square, they'd have their first New York hits with a star of the day named Richard Mansfield. Um, They would creep north because in 1902, they'd get the lease on the Casino Theater at 39th and Broadway. And then the next year, 1903, they'd get the lease on the Lyric Theater, which had been built on 42nd Street which in 1903, of course, was brand new, right across the street Mm -hmm. from the New Amsterdam. So they are expanding super rapidly here. Yeah, here in New York, but also around the country. Because in 1905, just two years later, they would actually control about 50 theaters, either by leasing the existing theaters that were there or by building new ones, Mm -hmm. um, or for others, just being in charge of booking their shows. And by 1905, they already employed about 1,500 people around the country. And Sam was now even planning their expansion into London's theater scene. I mean, you have to admit, this is pretty rapid. This is a very rags-to-riches type tale. This all happens so quickly. It's phenomenal. And it seems that it was really mostly due to the hard work and sort of the nervous energy and the smooth charm of Sam who was just always on the go. He was always surveying the market, um, looking for potential imports from London, still managing to find time for romance. He was described by McNamara as quite the ladies' man, and he had affairs with multiple leading ladies of his time, including Lulu Glazer, Faye Templeton, and probably also Evelyn Nesbitt, who also, of course, had an ill-fated relationship with the architect Stanford White. Ill-fated because her husband, Harry Thaw, killed Stanford White on the rooftop of Madison Square Garden. Right. Which is a different story. But on May 11th, 1905, Sam Schubert and some of his colleagues were taking the train to Pittsburgh to try to win back the lease on a theater that they'd lost. At 1.30 a.m. the next morning... As the train pulled by Harrisburg, Pennsylvania, his train swiped another train that was packed with explosives. This caused a terrible explosion that ultimately killed 22 people, including Sam Schubert. Now, I mean, this was a terrible loss for the theater world. But unfortunately, it also left... Lee and JJ basically to take the reins of the of the company, but to also fend for themselves during what can only be called a genuine theatrical war, a shift that was taking place that threatened to reshape the American theater world and threatened to leave the Schuberts on the outside. A theater war. We're not Mm -hmm. talking about like some diva in her dressing room or even the war on stage during Les Mis. No, yeah. You're talking about a war between theatrical organizations. 
Uh, yes. Now, I have to back the story up. Let's go back to the year 1896. I'm staying in New York City here. Okay. Uh, the Schubert's had just barely gotten started by this time, right? When here in New York, six very powerful men of the American theater met at the Holland House at Fifth Avenue and 30th Street to combine their powers and to create what was more or less a theatrical trust or a near monopoly if you will, although they would call it by a different name. They called it the Syndicate. 1890s. This is like heyday of unregulated trusts, Mm -hmm. right? Big corporations like Standard Oil at the time who were sort of entering into these agreements with their partners like the railroad or whoever to squeeze out really the smaller producers and the smaller companies to give them even more leverage and more power. Controlling the supply chain from one end to the other. So this was happening in theater, too. Yeah, I mean, it's a sign that theater is such big business that it eventually fell under a trust. Um, In this case, the syndicate, and in particular, the theater power players, Mark Claw and Abraham Erlinger. Now, these men produced plays, but they also owned theaters and booking agencies. And they soon brought in other partners, regional partners, to create a loose national network, essentially monopolizing the supply chain of American stage entertainment. According to the author Michael Rydell, quote, Together, they had a chain of playhouses stretching from one end of the continent to another. Producers, playwriters, and actors found themselves at their mercy. If they did not abide by the syndicate's term, they would be locked out of the best theaters in America, unquote. It's interesting because New York had so many theaters, right? Some of them were controlled by the syndicate, were members of the syndicate, and would put on their shows. But many were also independent houses. And Mm -hmm. so really to see the impact, the power of the syndicate, you have to kind of pull back and look at the country as a whole and who was getting booked where in smaller venues. Yes, let's look at the American theater scene in total here, right? Because in the mid-19th century, like a star couldn't just camp out in the New York theater scene forever. You know, shows needed to tour. And thanks to the railroad, Mm -hmm. stars could now form companies and develop shows, make deals with individual theaters in cities and towns to then create a national tour. So railroads were really helping these shows move around the heartland of the U.S., Mm -hmm. but at a cost. I mean, that wasn't cheap. No. I mean, and the syndicate knew that the key was not just operating theaters in big cities, which of course they did, but also having exclusive deals in smaller towns between the big cities. Because to pay for transportation and moving costs, a traveling show would often stop and play one-nighters in these Mm. smaller houses, towns that only had one theater, to essentially pay for the whole trip. So if all of these smaller theaters had exclusive deals with the syndicate, and they did, then shows that were not controlled by the syndicate could not afford to tour. So essentially, they created this stranglehold on the entire American theater business. And they even dictated the types of shows that could be made and were not exactly excited about anything that was remotely innovative. They also took then, as the years progressed, more and greater shares of these productions. 
Wow, this is like 19th century theatrical underbelly mm-hmm. um, and mafia. So then the Schubert's move into New York. How did they feel about the syndicate? Well, they had no choice but to work with the syndicate, you know, in those early years, or else they wouldn't be able to produce anything. But as the syndicate got more powerful and the Schubert's themselves started owning more theaters, they soon became seen as underdogs in a climate where many Americans were growing increasingly antitrust across the board. And the syndicates were then easily painted as villains. And it helped that a lot of very famous actors were angry with the syndicate as well and producers. And so there were a lot of managers who then looked for better deals and they saw the Schubert's as the next best option and gladly aligned with them. So then in time, as the Schubert's grew and took on more theaters, Mm -hmm. they become kind of an alternative to the syndicate. Yeah. Even though they themselves would over time get just as ruthless, perhaps even more so on a personal level, but they played to the public more successfully, especially when it came to these big stars that the public loved. They were able to kind of use that goodwill in bolstering their own reputation. One example of this, for instance, was the famed French actress Sarah Bernhardt. Ah, Madame Bernhardt, the... uh... (laughs) perhaps the most famous actress in the world here in the early 20th century, 1905. Yeah, actually in 1905, she was on an American farewell tour. Now, she actually went on a few farewell tours. She was a bit like Cher in that regard. (laughs) (laughs) That's Celine Dion of her time. Yes. yes. But in 1905 and 1906, uh, she toured America. But of course, because she was with the Schuberts, she couldn't perform everywhere. Oh, because the syndicate wouldn't allow her into their theaters? Yeah, they had that exclusive deal in those smaller playhouses. So when she began touring, uh, she settled in some places for performing in tents, like circus tents, outdoor stages, which would have otherwise been insulting for an actress of that caliber, but for the fact that this actually drew more attention to her tour because these photos were very striking and and Schubert's were able to use that against the syndicate. Well, yeah, I imagine that it garnered some sympathy for her, right? I mean, here's a beloved French actress coming over, forced to perform in a tent. I mean, that would be great publicity for the shows and also really bad publicity for the syndicate. I can see how they were sort of chipping away at the syndicate's reputation. Right. Over time, the Schuberts managed to snatch up all the great talent and all the great shows because of the withering reputation of the syndicate, essentially leaving the syndicate with second-rate attractions and shows that would not be able to draw audiences in those smaller markets, those one-night-only markets. So it kind of backfired on them eventually. But even more importantly, as the Schuberts grew more powerful... They started investing in brand new opulent playhouses that they built themselves using investments from business connections in in Syracuse and in other places, investments that were kind of used against the syndicate. Right, building playhouses across the country, but especially here in New York City. Yeah, I mean, when we say that the Schuberts built the Broadway Theater District, we mean it literally. You know, they already had taken over 
pre-existing houses, like the the Grand Ole Hippodrome over on 6th Avenue in 1909. (laughs) They took over that operation. But now they were building their own theaters at a greater number. At the center of their empire, the brothers commissioned architect Henry Hertz to design two complementary theaters mid-block between Broadway and 8th Avenue. So on the 44th Street side, you had the Samuel S. Schubert Memorial Theater, named, of course, after their brother, and shortened just to the Schubert Theater. And that would host, you know, musicals, really large productions. And then that theater is back-to-back with a theater on the 45th side. And that theater would be named the Booth Theater, hosting smaller productions and plays. And named after Edwin Booth, the famed actor. The famed tragedian. Both of these theaters were constructed in 1913. Those theaters were next to the aforementioned Hotel Astor and separated by a small alley. This alley then, constructed in 1913, would be known as Schubert Alley. It would become the center of the Schubert Empire. And then both brothers would move into offices above the Schubert at the time of its construction. But it didn't stop there. Oh, no. They quickly expanded further. In 1917, they opened the Broadhurst, also on 44th Street, the Morosco and the Plymouth on 45th Street. In 1918, the Central Theater up on 47th Street. And then a few more in 1921, including the Ambassador at 49th Street, which is still around today. And then four years after that, in 1925, on the same street, the Edwin Forrest Theater, which is today's Eugene O'Neill Theater. It's kind of wild. I mean, all of these theaters packed into just a few streets, really, in the center of Manhattan. I would say, though, that the most famous of all the Schubert theaters was actually constructed before any of these had been built and slightly out of this cluster. So the year is 1910. And as the story goes, J.J. Schubert was walking up Broadway to 50th Street up to the American Horse Exchange, which was owned by the Vanderbilts for thoroughbred horse trading built in the era of horse-drawn conveyances. Well, 1910, where obviously the automobile is in ascendance, those horse-drawn vehicles are being replaced by automobiles, and J.J. wanted to lease this site for a theater of his own. In fact, architect William Albert Swayze would construct a theater stage out of the very horse exchange itself. Then later, Herbert Crapp, who would actually be the architect on many Schubert theaters, would then fully renovate the place anew in the mid-1920s. And they would take its name from that of a very famous 19th century theater, the Winter Garden. Meow. (laughs) Home, of course, for forever. Uh, or for many years at least, to to cats and um, and Mamma Mia too. Mm-hmm. So was the Winter Garden then the Schubert's largest theater? Well, it was among the theaters that they built during the teens and 1920s. Although by the 1930s, you know, they would continue to purchase theaters. They wouldn't build them, and they would purchase theaters that were much larger, like the Majestic on 44th Street mm-hmm. and the Broadway Theater on 53rd. So the syndicate has crumbled. The Schuberts are now the most powerful theater owners in town. 
we've talked about everything, Greg, except the the shows themselves. They were <laughs> also true. putting on shows in these places. Well, I must say that many of the greatest shows in Broadway history would spring up from Schubert stages, but more so like starting in the 1930s and 40s and beyond. But I did want to bring up one enduring series of shows that the Schuberts were famous for, and right at this moment when the syndicate was crumbling. These shows were called The Passing Shows, and they played at the Winter Garden from 1912 to 1924. They were specifically designed to compete with the biggest Broadway craze of this particular time. And that craze, I'm assuming, was the Ziegfeld Follies. Oh, yes. These shows were filled with dancing girls and beautiful costumes and sets. Uh, they were reviews, which featured you know, great melodies and great comedians. But the passing show was most certainly second rate compared to Ziegfeld and his follies. Um, from the very first review in the New York Times, Tom, of a passing show, 1912, quote, a new pace was set for the Winter Garden last night when the latest entertainment, The Passing Show of 1912, was shown for the first time. Many pretty girls and many popular players romped through a jumble of things politic, theater, and social, leaping from comedy scenes to elaborate musical numbers with an agility inspired by an unusual energetic stage director, keeping the audience either constantly amused or constantly interested. It was all foolery of a helter-skelter order. What tomfoolery? <laughs> sounds like sounds like these little comedic hits. I mean, it was really made for short attention spans. <laughs> In a way, it's kind of like theater for the Instagram era. I'm surprised no one's actually brought this back, actually. It's, we should get somebody on the phone. <laughs> but of course, the Schubert story was just getting started. We'll get to the Schubert's in the Roaring Twenties right after this. On April 19, 1995, a federal building in Oklahoma City was destroyed in a domestic terrorist attack. Just days after the bombing, America discovered the perpetrator was right-wing extremist Timothy McVeigh, whose mindset and values are still very present today. It's an American tragedy, but one I still remember very vividly. But there is so much more to the story than what you might remember. Take a deeper look into this moment of history with the podcast Homegrown OKC, hosted by Jeffrey Tubin and based on his book. The Homegrown OKC podcast is about better understanding the political environment in our country today. In particular, I found fascinating all the original archival footage used in the show, sounds which brought me back to that time, but with a richer understanding of events. These episodes were thrilling to listen to. That's Homegrown OKC. To listen, search for Homegrown OKC in your podcast app. That's Homegrown OKC. In the decades before the Civil War, slavery's grip on America tightened. But soon, a diverse group of abolitionists, both black and white, began to construct a clandestine path to freedom for the enslaved. Hosted by Lindsey Graham, Wondry's podcast, American History Tellers, takes you to the events, times, and people that shaped America and Americans, our values, our struggles, and our dreams. 
In the latest series, American History Tellers explores the Underground Railroad, a covert network of secret routes and safe houses operated by men and women committed to helping enslaved people escape bondage in the South. Fugitive slaves and anyone helping them face terrible violence and even death if caught. But for those brave enough to risk the journey, the Underground Railroad offered a path to the northern states in Canada, where their freedom was assured. Follow American History Tellers on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can binge this season's American History Tellers, The Underground Railroad, early and ad-free right now on Wondery Plus. So it's the 1920s, a jazz age, and theater is absolutely booming in New York City. So I assume these were good times for the Schuberts. <laughs> theater was booming in New York, but also all around the country. So they were doing very well. In fact, in 1924, the Schuberts reorganized all their various smaller companies into one public corporation called the Schubert Theatrical Corporation. And this company operated 30 theaters in New York City and 56 more around the country. Another company that they owned, the United Booking Office, booked shows for an additional 750 theaters in the country. That's really wild and I guess kind of syndicate light, if we're being <laughs> honest. So by 1924, they had 86 theaters. Yes, and actually by 1928, they would operate 101 theaters, including basically all of the, th the Broadway theaters along 44th and 45th Street. And they were making a lot of money because when the show made money, they made money. They would charge the show between 30 and 50% of the box office as rental. During their most profitable season of this period, 1926, their company made a profit of $3 million. And all the entertainment during this period was, of course, maybe similar to the passing shows, right? Chorus girls, zany musical comedies. And much of it was. Yeah, lots of chorus girls in reviews, like the passing show that you mentioned. But also they had another one called Vanities. They had something that had a little more sex appeal called Artists and Models. In 1925, another one called Gay Paris which was inspired by J.J.'s travels uh, to Paris, where he went to the Moulin Rouge. So they mixed in lots of chorus dancers with big stars of the time, like Eddie Cantor, Al Jolson, Burt Williams. And then they used acts from like vaudeville shows. So uh, they had comedians like Burt Lahr and Ed Wynn and the Marx Brothers, all in these kind of big musical and comedic reviews. And I assume there must have been some room for more serious fare on the stage. They were producing some plays as well, but they were really, the brothers were actually really big fans of operetta, which if you're not familiar with operettas, they're European style, usually light operas with intriguing plot lines, but rather old fashioned. Mm -hmm. One example here was an operetta called Blossom Time. It was a massive hit when they produced it in 1921. To give you an example of an operetta, it was a highly fictionalized account of the life of the composer Franz Schubert, and it used many of his melodies to make songs. The music had been reworked by Sigmund Romberg and Dorothy Donnelly, 
So the Schuberts take on Schubert. <laughs> exactly. But this time with a C. Schubert mm-hmm. with a C. Um, they could have just called it Schubert with a C. It's kind of like Liza <laughs> with a Z. <laughs> Blossom Time would play for 600 performances on Broadway. And Romberg and Donnelly would then team up again in 1924 to write another smash hit operetta for them called The Student Prince. It was kind of an impossible love story about a prince who was studying at the University of Heidelberg in Germany, but incognito. And this all sounds so antiquated and even cheesy, but (laughs) we have to remember that the classic American musical form did Mm -hmm. not yet exist here in the mid-1920s. Right. Here in 1924, musical shows, if you went to see something musical, they were reviews, you know, comedic reviews or whatever, or they were these kinds of operettas, or they were comedies that would stop and have songs, but the songs that they had didn't do anything to advance the plot. But things, of course, would change. And one reason was because of a show that opened on December 27th, 1927. That night, Florence Ziegfeld would open a new musical that was written by Jerome Kern and Oscar Hammerstein, Showboat, based on the novel by Edna Ferber. And for the first time in a major Broadway production, the songs were actually integrated into the story and the songs would advance the plot. And the Broadway musical would never be the same. But Showboat was not in a Schubert playhouse. No. But I assume the Schubert's took this new form very seriously. Well, it, it doesn't seem like they were really interested because they kept producing mostly reviews and operettas. And as the years went by, these operettas were beginning to feel really old-fashioned. Mm-hmm. They were not at all like this new, exciting American musical that was taking off on other stages. So with all this going on with the Schuberts, how did they actually work with each other? I mean, their their corporation here now is massive. Were they still cramped up here in these offices above the Schubert Theater? Well, according to Brooks McNamara in his book, The Schuberts of Broadway, quote, following Sam's tradition, Lee and JJ continued to work tirelessly to build the company. 14-hour days were common for both men, each of whom had taken to handling particular aspects of the business. Although their spheres often overlapped, J.J. was responsible for musicals and for construction and maintenance of the theaters. Lee tended to handle straight plays, finances, publicity, and advertising, and maintenance of their non-theatrical real estate. Each had his own staff, Lee's side and J.J.'s side, as people in the company called them. So it doesn't sound like they worked closely together. It sounds like they were actually quite divided. Yeah, there was some kind of tension, uh, which is supported by the fact that there are hardly any photos of the two brothers together. I mean, there are some, but very few. But it's also kind of hard to know if this tension was a bit of a Broadway legend or even encouraged, you know, by Mm -hmm. their own press departments just to get a little publicity. But did they actually have offices together? Well, Lee continued to stay above the Schubert Theater, but J.J., in the meantime, in the 1920s, had moved across 44th Street to the south side and had his offices and his apartment above Sardi's in the Sardi building. Sardi's, the legendary place where many theater deals would be made. And continue to be made. Well, once it reopens. 
But that doesn't sound too convenient for actually running a company. <laughs> no. I mean, there was literally a street between them. An amazing profile of the brothers ran in 1939 in The New Yorker that was written by A.J. Liebling. Uh, he spends quite a few paragraphs here examining this rift between the two brothers and also their eccentricities. He writes, When Lee, in his office in the Schubert Theater, wishes to communicate with J.J. in the Sardi building, he summons Jack Morris, his secretary, and says, Take a letter to Mr. J.J., when J.J. wishes to communicate with Lee, he says to his secretary, Take a letter to Mr. Lee. This custom has given rise to a theater district legend that the brothers are mortal enemies and do not speak at all. The legend is not founded on fact. When either of the Schuberts is really in a hurry to discuss something with the other, he walks across the street to do so. It's too bad there's not like a clothesline between the two buildings that they could just attach letters and like just like uh, reel them back and forth. Uh huh. Maybe some tin cans. Yes. You know? <laughs> well, Liebling explains the reasoning for these separate offices later in the article. He says, Mr. JJ says that it was the intention of the Messieurs, because they're going by this point by the Monsieur Schubert. When they collaborated in the construction of the Sardi building in 1926, it was their intention to move all their executive offices there from the somewhat constricted quarters on the upper floors of the Schubert Theater. That summer, Mr. J.J. made his annual trip to Europe to inspect the new vintage of operettas. When he returned, he found that his office furniture had been moved into the new building, but that Mr. Lee had treacherously remained in the Schubert Theater. The Schubert Enterprises have been a two-headed organism ever since, with Mr. Lee's casting department and executive staff on the north side of 44th Street and Mr. J.J. on the south side. So they built the Sardis building, mm -hmm. which of course has the restaurant in it. So they're almost as much a real estate company as anything else. Absolutely. And J.J. lived up in that building alone with a cook and a maid. We find out that Lee, quote, invariably ate at Sardi's every single day for lunch, and J.J. only ate there when he had some important business lunch to attend to. They both happened to love the Hotel Astor as well. But they weren't known for actually dining together. Oh, no. In fact, at the Hotel Astor, where they would both dine and have meetings as well, they would never do it together. They would be on opposite sides of the restaurant. Well, you know... Family-run businesses can be very complicated. Um, and in their case, it even got more complicated because in the 1930s, J.J.'s son John would drop out of Harvard Law School and join the family business here. And he would, throughout his career, he pretty much always stay in the shadow of his father, never quite comfortable with his theatrical responsibilities. And now... We're in the 30s here, and the theater landscape looks very different now as we enter into the Great Depression. Yeah, well, in fact, it had already changed a bit by the end of the 1920s because radio had begun to cut into ticket sales uh, by the late 20s. People could just stay at home and listen to the stars for free. But yes, here in the Depression, it became much more difficult to fill the theaters even when producers, including the Schuberts, started to slash their ticket prices. The Schuberts as well cut back on producing. They closed some of their theaters. 
Half of the theaters, in fact, in New York would close. New York would go from 72 Broadway theaters down to 36 during those early years of the Depression. And by 1931, the Schubert Theatrical Corporation went bankrupt. And two years later, Lee Schubert was actually able to buy back the company's assets for just $400,000. And with that, he then formed a new company called Select Theaters. I must say that's a very unusual twist. They went bankrupt, and then he eventually bought back the company's assets. Yeah. Thus allowing them to continue to make Broadway theater. Yes, it did allow them to keep producing shows. And there were a number of little twists to the story here in the 30s. The Schubert's would actually start producing the biggest hit of their former arch rival, Florence Ziegfeld. After Ziegfeld died in 1932, his widow, Billy Burke, would come to them asking them to, to help her out, get out of debt, and produce the Ziegfeld Follies. So their Follies, the Ziegfeld Follies produced by the Schubert's, would see several iterations and feature big stars like Fanny Bryce, Eve Arden, and others. It would be a big hit. But probably the Schubert's biggest hit of the 1930s, a phenomenon, was called Hell's a Poppin'. And it opened in 1938 at the 46th Street Theater. Oh my God, I, I love saying Hell's a Poppin'. I love like <laughs> living in the glow of Hell's a Poppin'. Just saying Hell's a Poppin'. Hell's a Keep Poppin'. Keep saying it. <laughs> um, but I, what is the storyline of Hell's a Poppin'? Like, why don't we see like Hell's a Poppin' revivals across the country right now? <laughs> Well, I think that in terms of storyline, uh, I'm not even sure if there was one. It was kind of like two hours of nutty slapstick gag humor created by the vaudeville comedy team Ole Olson and Chick Johnson. You know, they had men in gorilla suits, hula dancers. There were blackouts. And, you know, the theater would black out and then dried beans would be silently tossed at the at the audience. People would think it was like snakes and spiders and things. Interactive. <laughs> Truly, uh, it, it premiered on September 22nd, 1938. Brooks Atkinson describes it this way in his review the next day, in the next day's times. Folks, it is going to be a little difficult to describe this one. Hell's a poppin' is what they call it, and it was discharged at the 46th Street last evening. Deciding that it might be a good idea to put on a show, Oli Olson and Chick Johnson, a pair of vaudeville knockabouts, stood on the corner of the street, and stopped every third man. Those were their actors. Taking an old broom, they went up to the attic and swept out all the gags in sight. Those were their jokes. Dropping into an ammunition store downtown, they picked up several boxes of blank cartridges. Those were to indicate that the jokes had been told, and that it was time to start laughing. Then they moved everything in sight into the 46th Street Theater, got an audience down front, and set them to laughing. Anything goes in Hell's a Poppin', noise, vulgarity, practical joking, and about every third number is foolish enough for guffawing. So, actually, when you read the whole review, you realize he kind of liked it. He has a hard time explaining <laughs> what he saw, but he just keeps underscoring that people were laughing their heads off. This was a huge, huge hit, and it would play for three years. And actually, there'd be four more productions uh, by the same comedy team up through 1944. But into the 40s here, of course, audiences had something else on their minds as they were headed into the theaters. And that, of course, was war in Europe, World War II. Yeah. And the 
theater industry had something else to worry about too, TV. And popular tastes were changing too. You know, those old reviews and especially the operettas, they weren't really working anymore. And by the end of the 1940s, the Schubert's had had really stopped producing shows at all. They were instead focusing on their theaters and on the real estate and on their other sort of ancillary businesses. And speaking of real estate, this brings us to a very important moment in the history, not just of the Schubert's, but of American theater. Because in 1949, the Schubert's faced a really big choice, whether or not to sell out to the TV networks. Remember that the TV industry was based in New York at the time, and some of the theaters were actually already being used as broadcast studios. But here's the thing. Along 44th and 45th Streets and elsewhere in the city, the Schubert's owned their theaters, but they didn't own the land under the buildings because the land itself was owned by the Astor family, and it was leased for 99 years. And in the late 1940s, the networks approached the Astor family about buying the actual land in order to build new modern TV studios. But first, of course, they'd have to buy up all the theaters from the Schubert's. So the Schubert's faced a real choice here. Should they cash in and sell all their theaters or should they hold firm? Yeah, and they held firm or actually they they doubled down because instead Instead of just saying no, they decided instead to buy the land themselves from the Astor family. And they bought the land under those theaters along 44th and 45th for a price that's estimated to be between $3.5 million and $4 million, which was one of the largest real estate transactions of the day. And like that, they now owned not just the theaters along 44th and 45th, but the land that they sat on. And that included Schubert Alley. Now, it's unfortunate that we don't have more time to spend talking about all of the iconic shows which debuted in Schubert theaters during the 1950s, like The Music Man at the Majestic, Paint Your Wagon at the Schubert, Peter Pan, and even West Side Story over at the Winter Garden, because the Schubert's were facing a crisis during this decade. They were distracted by a crisis. In 1950, the Schubert's were hit with an antitrust lawsuit from the federal government, charging them with engaging in a host of monopolistic practices. A New York Times article from 1950 uh, breaks down the charges. Quote, the complaint accuses the defendants of entering into a conspiracy to compel producers to book their legitimate attractions exclusively through the defendants to exclude others from booking those attractions, to prevent competition, to discriminate in favor of their own productions, and to combine their power in booking and presentation to maintain and strengthen their domination in each of these fields. Well, I mean, this kind of sounds like what the Schubert's had been accusing the syndicate of doing Mm -hmm. 50 years before, but... Also, it sounds like what was happening in the movie theater business in a case that would go to the Supreme Court in 1948, right? When the studios were accused of forcing their theaters to only show films that had been produced by their studio. Yeah, there's definitely some similarities in what's going on here, and it's all happening around the same time. But in this case, 
specifically against the Schuberts. In the midst of all of this, on the afternoon of Christmas Day, 1953, Lee Schubert died at Mount Sinai Hospital of circulatory failure. While all of this was going on, and so this meant that this left JJ then as the sole head of the company to to tackle these charges? Yeah, and in fact, JJ and the organization eventually signed a consent decree in 1956, where they agreed to divest in several aspects of their business. It also meant selling off 12 theaters, four of them in New York, including the St. James Theater, which they owned by this point. But now they had to sell that. In a way, though, downsizing actually proved a bit beneficial in the long run, because it it meant that they could conveniently let go of stages that were the least profitable to begin with. But still, I mean, it sounds like a really chaotic time, you know, no matter how we look at this. In fact, JJ, uh, during this period, hired two attorneys who had figured greatly into the future of the corporation, Gerard Schoenfeld, and then later Bernard B. Jacobs. But they stepped into a very nasty battle for the control of the Schubert organization during this period between J.J. and his son, John, who you mentioned, on one side, and then Lee's heir, uh, his nephew, Milton, who had been designated by Lee Schubert before he died to be the corporation's new general manager. So you see this like ill will that's been sort of festering for decades rising up in these very contentious ways here. But in the end, Milton, who had been you know Lee's designee here, Milton was literally driven out of New York entirely. So this would then put J.J. and his son John in charge of the Schubert organization. But the story will take a couple more tragic turns here. So John does become the general manager, but he died of a sudden heart attack in 1962. And then a little over a year later, then on December 26, the day after Christmas, 1963, J.J. Schubert died. And according to his front page obituary, quote, of a cerebral hemorrhage at age 86 years old. Nephew Milton, you know, who had been driven out of the business, then died in Florida in 1967. So then within just a few years, nearly all of the Schuberts were no longer alive. Huge changes here on Schubert Alley both symbolically and physically, it would turn out. For in 1967, the same year that Milton died, the Hotel Astor, that structure on the other side of Schubert Alley, was torn down and replaced by the skyscraper One Astor Plaza, as you mentioned at the start of our show. The Astor, which had opened in 1904, the year the district was named Times Square, the Astor represented the glory days of the theater district. And now it was gone, and the Schubert brothers were gone. But the theater, of course, here in New York, would live on, as would the Schubert organization, because clearly they're still around and today own 17 Broadway theaters. But the ultimate destination for Schubert fans is actually on the other side of Broadway, on West 45th Street, above the Lyceum Theater, a Schubert-owned property. 
The Lyceum is one of the oldest operating playhouses in New York, and it had an apartment built on the upper floors of the theater, and it's there that you can find the Schubert Archive, a rich repository of theatrical history, preserving the legacy of the Schubert brothers. So just yesterday, Tom and I walked up the lobby steps of the Lyceum to the second floor and into a small elevator built by the theater's impresario, Daniel Froman. Now, this elevator makes only one stop, and that is to the floor where Froman's apartment used to be. And today, that is the home of the Schubert Archive. It's a magnificent space living room, a dining room, turned into a wonderful library, just lined with theater books, theater memorabilia, even Tony Awards were over there. Maybe Greg and I got to hold one. (laughs) Well, in this stunning room, we sat down to chat with Mark Swartz, the director of the archive, to discuss how the Schubert organization grew after the 1960s and how it functions today. Here we are. An a door that says the, the Schubert, Schubert Archive. Archive. And welcome. Thank you. So we're sitting at a table in perhaps the living room? Uh, uh, this is actually Lee Schubert's dining table. This came out of his dining room. This was Lee Schubert's dining room table? Yes. Wow. What's so amazing is that you can look around this room and see all the original furnishings. And then you can look out the window and you see the, the neon lights of... Times Square, modernity just sort of shining down. You have like over a hundred years of history pouring in here at any given moment. Yeah, it's true. I mean, over the years even, we've seen the neighborhood rise. I've been here since 1988, and the view outside the windows is so different now from 1988. (laughs) And as you say, all the electronic signs have morphed from a simpler kind of format, sometimes even in in those days still being neon, and now you have everything LED or LCD, whatever. You know, so we're sitting at this table uh, next next to a piano, um, that was the, Mr. Schoenfeld's piano, by the way. Oh, really? <laughs> and, and walls of books, theater books, quite a collection. But right in front of us are framed photographs of the 17 Schubert theaters in New York City. Earlier in the show, we were just talking about when they came to New York in 1900, when the brothers came. And really, starting at the Herald Square Theater, but then very, very quickly, how they grew and they developed this empire. I mean, just in a number of years, Mm -hmm. they became huge impresarios. How do you think that it was possible? How did how did that work? I mean, how were they able to grow so big and so so quickly? They were actually extremely savvy for, you know, uh, guys who didn't have much formal education. Um, They had a natural business sense. They also had the support of the community in Syracuse. They they had the backing of the business community, and that was uh, something that really enabled them to expand quickly. And I think early on, maybe because they had nothing growing up, they realized the value of property and land. I mean, one of the reasons we have a theater district today is because of the Schuberts. You know, they had the opportunity in the 40s to actually, many of the theaters on 44th and 45th Streets were on Astor-owned property, but they had an option to purchase. And at one point, 
the Astros said to them that the television producers were interested in building studios and perhaps even tearing theaters down and the Schubert's had the option to just let their leases go or be bought out of their lease, but instead, in one of the larger real estate deals at the time, Lee Schubert decided to buy the land under the core of the theaters there. From the Astors. From the Astors. And that pretty much, you know, guaranteed that the theaters weren't going anywhere. Although zoning plays a part in that too. Right. And landmarking, obviously. Yeah, but I mean, they wouldn't have even been here probably to landmark if the Schubert's hadn't been, you know, so stalwart in keeping the theaters running and keeping the buildings there. And and early on, I think they realized the property and and actual places to run their shows was a crucial part of competing with the syndicate. You know, perchance, uh, going back to the really interesting idea of how television kind of moved in, and obviously was of great detriment to many of the theaters, but then a lot of the TV studios actually moved into some of the theaters. Did that happen to any of the Schubert houses? Because, I mean, famously, like Studio 54 was, you know, was one place, and they had Sullivan, but... Um, were any of the uh, Schubert houses at, at some point converted to, t- to television? Yeah, there were short-term leases. The Ambassador, for instance, I think was leased for a while to the Dumont Television Network. And in fact, we have a photograph with the Dumont Television Network on the outside. And some correspondence when the, when the lease was up, J.J. Was, was complaining to his son John in a letter about how the television people really wrecked the theater and left behind all this, mm. you know, broken walls and banged up plaster <laughs> and stuff like that. But, you know, by and large, it was never a long-term deal to do any of that. It was short-term when theaters were going through tough times and dark periods. Speaking of uncertain times and with television, uh, makes me think of the 1950s and 60s. It's, it's interesting to me that the Schubert's kind of pulled back on producing during those decades. And this is a time that we often think of as kind of like the glory day, right? The, the right. golden age of Broadway, all the Rodgers and Hammerstein musicals, etc. Right. And many of those were going up in Schubert houses. Right. But they weren't Again, producing. that's where the real estate side of the business really served them well. Mm-hmm. Because even though they weren't producing as much, they played host to all of those classic shows. And so are able to you know, keep the company thriving on that basis. So they could make money on Oklahoma, which right. opened in a Schubert house. Right. But they weren't invested in the production the same way. It's hard, even as archivists who have so much of the business records of the company, it's sometimes hard to figure out what the Schubert's invested in, even when they weren't fully producing something. They would often put some money into a show, or they'd be a secret angel, or they would, you know, somehow have some involvement, or if a show played in their theater, they might give it some kind of concession on the rent or something. You know, they would have some kind of investment in some of those shows. They just weren't producing in the way that they did. We are more or less ending, like, our portion of the show right with the death of the brothers in the mid-60s. But it's really interesting because the Schubert organization obviously restructures in this very important and profound way then in the 60s and early 70s. What was the story behind that? Yeah, it's interesting. By the time J.J. dies, the last brother in 1963, 
Theater and New York are a little bit of at a crossroads, and you know that from that point in the 60s up until maybe in the 80s, Broadway undergoes a transformation, partly because of the popular culture changing, Broadway musicals having to contend with rock and roll and other kinds of popular music changed the, the nature of that. The move to the suburbs after the war was sort of coming to a head and some of the cities were being abandoned and left behind. And we all know about how the porn industry moved into Times Square and took over a lot of the movie theaters in the area. And so there was a lot to contend with there. And at, at the same time that the last Schubert brother died, the last Schubert family member takes over the company, Lawrence Schubert Lawrence Jr. And uh, he runs a company for about 10 years during this difficult time when theater is, is in decline. And he's not the best of managers, um, and he has a lot of problems uh, with keeping the company going, and sort of falls prey to this general decline and the company does, for the first time in its history, almost fold. I mean, things were not good for the company. In, in the 60s? Or in, in the, the 70s? By the time we get to the early 70s, things are not looking good. So they, the, the company was going, it was still booking things, but in terms of its cash flow, in terms of its business structure, it was floundering a little bit. And so the board got together, the board of the Schubert uh, organization gets together and ousts Lawrence and puts members of the board, uh, Mr. Gerald Schoenfeld, Bernard Jacobs, and a third man, William Goldman, for a short time, as heads of the company. And what kind of changes did they make? Number one change in the 70s was Mr. Schoenfeld was a big proponent of the urban environment. You know, who's going to come to see a show if there's trash in the streets, if there are drug dealers, if there are sex workers, it doesn't feel safe. And if they do come, they're not going to hang around in the area. So he was really instrumental in beginning that whole movement to clean up Times Square. And you see the direct product of his many, many years of, of haranguing city agencies and the mayor mm -hmm. in what we have in Times Square today. Um, another thing they did was to actively start producing again. Their first show that they produced right after Mr. Schoenfeld and Jacobs took over was Pippin. They decided to put a $50,000 investment in Pippin. That was a good investment. Yeah, <laughs> and uh, so that was another thing they did. They also, along with the advertising agency for, for Pippin, uh, came up with this idea that we could utilize television to our advantage by showing a clip from a show in the television ad that hadn't been done before. So that was something that they realized. The other main thing they did was they got more involved in the ticketing process mm -hmm. and computerizing ticketing um, in those early days, whatever was a computer then, but also the idea of just taking credit cards and taking credit cards remotely. They started opening uh, ticket outlets in Macy's. They started taking orders by phone. And that's the genesis of Telecharge? Yes. And if you didn't realize the importance of Schoenfeld and Jacobs like in the story of the Schubert organization and Broadway history in general, they are now immortalized in the names of the two theaters right next to the booth, right? Right, <laughs> yes. And there was a lot of controversy about that because Mr. Schoenfeld was still alive when they did that and some people saw it as a, you know, an ego trip. He actually was not behind that idea. 
But I, you know, I honestly do think they were underestimated because they began as lawyers, but they really did become the Schuberts, and they did an awful lot for the industry and the revitalization of Times Square. So I think it's fair that they have theaters named after them. You know, you mentioned Pippin, which is, which is definitely one of my favorite shows, but we can't talk about the 70s and 80s and Schubert Productions without mentioning, of course, A Chorus Line, which right. opened in 1975 and ran, correct me if I'm wrong, but till 1990? Yes. At the, at the yes. Schubert. Yeah. That's interesting. The, the Schuberts were very much involved with that, and Mr. Jacobs became really a close friend with Michael Bennett. And they were very supportive, and of course they did Dream Girls with Michael Bennett. But the actual production of A Chorus Line was, of course, created and produced at the Public Theater. Right. So with, the, with money from Schubert's or no? The Schubert's had an investment, I believe, and they definitely um, you know, had an investment moving it to Broadway and mm -hmm. supporting it all those years and putting it in their flagship house um, and doing what they could for it. But they weren't officially producers of Chorus Line, even though everybody thinks of Schubert and Chorus Line because they had such a tight history together. What, what about that other show that would then smash A Chorus Line's history that's also a Schubert show, Cats, Cats yes. at the Winter Garden? Did they, did they produce Cats? They did produce Cats, um, along with the David Geffen and Cameron McIntosh. And Cats really was a huge show for the Schuberts. I mean, you know, it, it was in the early 80s at a time when we were coming out of that terrible period of the 70s, and Cats really, really helped help them come out of it. And here at the archive, we have a huge amount of material, not surprisingly, on cats. Because um, <laughs> it ran so long, and it was so associated with Schubert. So we even have, we do have a set of costumes from cats. <laughs> so. oh, can we try one on, please? <laughs> I, hope, I hope nobody here is allergic. <laughs> of course, we're having this, this discussion right now in September of 2021, which is a momentous month on Broadway as, as Broadway's reopening has reopened. Certain shows have already reopened, others you walk by. It's so exciting to be on 44th and 45th and see signs in the windows that don't say something closed, but that it's reopening. It's a, it's a really exciting time after a really dreadful year and a half, and particularly for this industry. And I wonder, you know, the Schubert brothers weathered, well, they weathered the Spanish flu, outbreak before, but then I was just thinking of, you know, the depression, like an absolute emergency where nobody was thinking about necessarily going to the theater as they had before. What do you think they would have done? How do you think that they might have approached this, this difficult year and a half? I'm not sure what the brothers would have done, but I suspect based on what happened in their lifetime, they would have just gone business as usual and done what they, they could to keep it going. Because even in the Depression, when they themselves had to go into receivership, they used their own money to buy back the skeleton of, of the company. And they also, sometimes behind the scenes, gave money, kept actors employed, kept offices open. So I suspect they would have tried to do that um, and keep things going. I don't think they would have thrown in the towel. In New York, uh, do you know how many of the, the Schubert 17 Broadway houses have reopened? There, almost all of them have bookings for the for the coming year. Ironically, this house, the Lyceum, which 
uh, well into the 80s was, was still often dark for long periods of time, <laughs> is one of the first of the Schubert houses to come back with, with these current two plays running in repertory. I think the first one to reopen uh, was the Barrymore with Waitress. But by the end of the year, I think pretty much every house is accounted for, uh, with one or two exceptions. How exciting. And what exactly is, or what comprises the Schubert archive, and, and how did it come about? Well, we're basically the um, record keepers of the company's history and the preservers of the legacy. Our mission as part of the Schubert Foundation is to fulfill some of the educational function that the foundation has. So we are open by appointment to researchers and by application. Um, so the public who have reason to, to research, if they're working on a book or a dissertation, do come here to do research. But it really is a very strong collection of all of the business records of the company in these 120 years. I mean, you know, ranging from letters that the brothers wrote to each other, to contracts with performers, to legal records, to business records and corporation records, mm -hmm. ledger books, all of that kind of stuff. In addition to some of the other more glamorous things like costume designs and set designs and architectural plans and programs and photographs and that kind of thing. Not to mention your line of Tony Awards, which I saw over there <laughs> right, in the display right. case. I don't think I've ever seen so many Tony Awards in one place. I don't think I've seen a Tony Award, actually. I think we need to go pose, Greg, <laughs> with some of those Tonys over there. Well, if you ask nicely, we'll let you take a selfie with a Tony if you want to. <laughs> oh! Greg just passed out on the floor of the Schubert Archive. Well, Mark Swartz, thank you so much to you and the entire staff here at the Schubert Archive for taking the time to show us around and to let our listeners head inside the Schubert organization. Thank you. Oh, you're very welcome. And welcome back to the theater. <laughs> and we want to dedicate this show, of course, to the reopening of Broadway. The marquee lights are once again shining in the Broadway Theater District. Right, and to all of the houses on Broadway. Not just the Schubert houses, but a big, hearty, warm embrace to all of the people who work in theater, on stage, off stage, backstage, front of house. Welcome back to your theaters. We cannot wait to be back in the audience as well. It's been way too long. We'll have images of the Broadway Theater District and some historical images of the Schuberts on our website, BoweryBoysHistory.com. In addition, you'll be able to find an official Bowery Boys Spotify playlist oh. influenced by all of the musicals which debuted in Schubert theaters. And, you know, I'm, I'm being kind of broad here, so there might be songs from The Passing Show and there may be a couple numbers from Cats. I... <laughs> Anything from Hell's a Poppin? If it exists, it'll be on the playlist. So check it out there. <laughs> a huge thank you to those who have joined us on patreon.com slash Bowery Boys with your small monthly contributions. It's because of you that Greg and I get the great pleasure and the honor of making the Bowery Boys our full-time job. And we have special thank yous, audio extras for you, including the Bowery Boys Movie Club, where we examine up close, scene by scene, films that were shot in New York City. There's a brand new episode of the Bowery Boys Movie Club awaiting patrons, where we celebrate the 50th anniversary of the William Friedkin movie, The French Connection, with Gene Hackman. 
and Roy Scheider. Very exciting, action-packed movie with a few iconic action scenes. So ah. you, you'll want to check that out. Uh, we'll also have a couple extra takeouts, which is our after-show conversation. But this time, we'll have a longer cut of our interview with Mark at the Schubert Archive. And in addition, we'll act because it's in a, we're in a theater mood. We're going to re-release um, an older audio extra we did of a live show that Tom and I recorded a few years ago with the podcast The Ensemblist, and that was a celebration of the St. James Theater, which is on 44th Street and was at one time a Schubert Playhouse. Wow. So thank you for joining us at patreon.com slash Bowery Boys. Thank you, of course, to Mark Sports and the whole staff at the Schubert Archive. We should mention that they also recently put out a book on 100 years of the American theater called The Schubert's Present. It's a beautiful coffee table book that takes you behind the scenes at all of those different Schubert theaters. And so the curtain comes down on this episode of The Bowery Boys. Well, thank you very much for listening. Have a great New York week, whether you live here or not. See you real soon. Thank you.